Hey, hey, before we get started with this brand new best of episode, we want to let you know about some great stuff coming up in the world of Go Fact Yourself. First, this is the month of the Max Fun Drive, the time of year when we beg you for money. I mean, ask for your support. <laughs> so we've got a whole bunch of special content coming up, including two episodes with our fellow Max Fun hosts as guests, plus the championship round of our listener tournament featuring two listeners as guests. We've already recorded these shows and oh boy, are you in for a treat. Treat for sure. Now this year for the Max Fun Drive, we've also got an unprecedented amount of bonus content, giveaways, and chances for you to be involved in the show, and special surprises, including an announcement that's been years in the making. Now, because of the Max Fun Drive, we're changing up our release schedule this month and giving you even more Go Fact Yourself than usual. Instead of our usual full episode drop on the third Friday of the month, March 15th, we'll have two new episodes for you on Mondays, March 18th and 25th plus special drops along the way all throughout the Max Fun Drive, which runs March 18 to 29. In the meantime, we've got more live audience shows we'd love you to come see on Saturday, March 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Crawford in Pasadena with scheduled guests Andy Richter and Tanya Mosley. Then on Saturday, March 30th at 7 p.m. at the Center for Inquiry West in Los Angeles with scheduled guest Adam Felber and another guest TBA. Plus, we've got more shows in April at the Center for Inquiry West on Sunday, April 21st and April 28th with guests to be announced. And then back at the Crawford in Pasadena on Saturday, June 8th with guests to be announced. Updated info on our live shows, including how to get tickets, can always be found on our website, gofactorpod.com. And now, the the best best of comic books. books. And I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Helen, look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's a brand new best of episode of Go Fact Yourself. In case that wasn't a strong enough hint, this time we're showcasing some of the best segments from contestants who chose comic books and superheroes for their area of expertise. Now, Helen, when it comes to comic books, I am not a big fan, personally, of all the superheroes from Marvel and DC. The extent of my comic reading as a child was uh, Archie comics, but I did do all of the different Archie comics. I did the Archie, the Betty, the Veronica, the Jughead, even Moose, even Midge. Uh, I loved them all. For whatever reason, I just never got into superhero comics, so. What about you? Any uh, fan of comic books? I believe that I have actually held an actual comic book in my hand perhaps once, maybe twice, in my entire life. Wow. And it was not intentional. Okay. (laughs) You were just passing it along to someone else? Yeah. Like someone handed it to me and I was like, I don't... I, uh, oh, you want me to give this to him? Oh, okay, okay. Well, I think that's one of the best things about our show is that we get to hear people discuss passions that we don't necessarily share, our listeners don't necessarily share, and yet I think we all get a lot of enjoyment just out of hearing people talk about what they love. So let's hear about some people who love comic books. First up is comedian Jackie Cation from episode 14 with her longtime love of Marvel comics, facing off against her fellow contestant, John Ross Bowie. Face front, true believers. Excelsior! I, I don't know what that means. I think it's a but... comic book reference, yeah. Oh, okay. It was... It was oh, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Now, here's your expert level question. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that requires multiple answers. It's time for your cluster fact. Cluster fact. Ooh. Ooh. 
you know. And we will be bringing on an expert to assess your response. The correct answer is worth up to three points. Here we go, Jackie. Between 2004 and now, there have been four presidential elections. During one of them, the amazing Spider-Man teamed up with a presidential candidate to defeat a villain. For up to three points, who was the candidate, who was the villain, and who wrote that story? Barack Obama, Mm -hmm. Norman Osborn, and Dan Slott. All right, Helen is taking notes of those answers. Helen, you got those answers written down? All right, we have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have here tonight? Here with us tonight is an Eisner Award-winning comic book writer who's written for DC, Boom Studios, and Marvel Comics. It's Mark Wade. Mark Wade. (laughs) Jackie's draw has dropped to the floor. They're embracing. It's... It's Mark Wade. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mr. Wade. Hello, Please sir. Please speak into that microphone. How there. are you? Very well. Jackie, how are you is the question. Very excited. <laughs> I, like, I like that you open your mouth and a feather came I out. I know. Yeah, that was something. She was literally I'm speechless. I'm an enormous fan. Thank I've been you. An, you were an so, amazing well, writer. Well, clearly, as you name-checked me from the... Uh, from uh, from nothing. The nice... It's yeah. like, I know, it's the worst. Yeah. All, good. All good. All good. All good. We're all, all friends good. here now. Now, t- tell us, for those who don't know, what are some of the Marvel comics that you've written? Mark? I've I've been doing this for 34 years. So wow. I, there's literally no Marvel character wow. I haven't been at some point or another. Uh, I have long runs on Fantastic Four, long runs on Daredevil, uh, long runs on Captain America. I've done that four or five times. I'm doing Captain America right now. Uh, and I've been, I really, I, there's no place in the Marvel Universe I haven't set foot at some point. That's amazing. What, Did you the, write Doctor Strange? I am, in fact, writing Doctor Strange starting in June. Wow. <laughs> well, can you give us here, just, just the people here, can you tell us what's going to happen in that, uh, that, that uh, issue? <laughs> No? Yeah. Are spoilers a thing in Spoil- comics as well? Spoilers. I wasn't aware. No spoilers. All right. Well, Jackie mentioned that uh, are many arcs from the comic books have ended up in movies. Anything right. that you've written in the comics has ended up on screen that we've seen? Not so much in the Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. but uh, the DC stuff that I did. I've also done a lot of DC stuff. And uh, every time I hear the word Speed Force on the Flash TV show or in the movies, suddenly my little heart grows three sizes. Because oh. um, that was your creation? That was me. And, and wow. also the... Uh, the S stands for hope. That's uh, that's from Superman. That's that's me. No so way! Yeah. That's so cool. That makes me very very happy. Yeah. Now Jackie's about to have her first comic uh, published that yeah. she's written. Uh, what was your first? What do you remember about that? And how did how did you get that gig? I. I could not have it kind of come any better. I wanted to write comics, uh, but I didn't really want to be a comic book writer. I had no ambition about being a comic book writer at all. You have that in common with Jackie. No, you just want the book to no, have been written. Absolutely not. Yeah. I wanted to be an editor. I wanted to be an editor, and really? so I went on staff as an editor at DC Comics, worked there for a couple of years, and the beauty of that was because I was working with so many different mm. writers, and all those scripts were coming across my desk. Mm. It was like boot camp, and I would oh. learn more in those two years about writing than I would have learned in 10 years on my own. And so going freelance from there, I, that was 89, and I've never had to look for a gig since. I'm really happy. Wow. What was the first comic that, that you wrote? I wrote an action comic Superman story for legendary editor Julia Schwartz. Very That's cool. Awesome. How does someone start being a comic book writer these days if they wanted to, to start it? Obviously, there's a lot of people who would love to do what you do. You know, the cool thing is the, the, my answer 10 years ago would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. It would have been print up your own comics at Kinko's and take them to conventions and send them to editors. Mm-hmm. That's, you don't have to do that anymore. Right. Now you just go to FedEx office instead. No, no, no. You, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's just like that. 
you can throw your comics up on the web and you can be a comic book creator tomorrow. We are all potentially, everybody in this room is a potential comic book creator. It, all you need is you know, a place to host. You need a website. That's all you need. There's all you're going to lose if you do your own work and put it on, on the web. You're not going to be able to monetize it immediately necessarily, right. but you're losing sweat equity. That's all you're losing. How, how has that democratization uh, affected, if at all? Everything. Everything, even the, even the big time, absolutely. The that stuff. is where new talent is drawn from these days. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes. You because, just find like yeah. random websites of people that have just well, put up their it's own a work. Very, it's a, the online comics community is very uh, social and very helpful to each other. So they're, you know, you tag your favorite artists, you tag your favorite writers. They see it, they recirculate it, they like it, they recommend it, mm. and it and it can go viral that way with them. And the beauty of doing your stuff online. Let's say you're doing a. a webcomic and you're doing it for six, like a, a page a day for six months or a page a week for six months, whatever. As an editor, I look at the work and not only do I see, hey, this is really good, this is interesting, but you have been able to do this on a regular basis for mm. weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm. You have a work ethic that I can count on when I hand you a script rather than worry that I'm going to hand you a job and you're just going to vanish because you can't handle it. Now, you obviously go to a lot of uh, conventions yes. and, and comic cons. One of the things I hear that uh, you actually are a, a very competitive trivia player I at comic I am, in fact, a very competitive trivia really? player. Yes, I am, yes. How, how, do, how well does your team do usually? It, uh, well, generally, I am my team. Oh, okay. This is, this is, this is generally a little leader of man. In Chicago, we, we, in Chicago, 10 years ago, we ran into a situation where, for whatever reason, my other three compatriots couldn't make it. So it was just me mm. versus the team. And then that's been me versus the team ever since. Oh, wow. And, and do, you, do you have to study, or is this just from knowledge that you've absorbed it, over the, it over the years? It is sadly just knowledge I have absorbed <laughs> over the years. It is, it, it is tragic. Ask me my senator's name. I don't know, but I can, I, can t- I can tell you every member of the Kryptonian Science Council. So. That's fun. So when fans come up to you and want to talk about a specific issue or a specific moment or a specific character, you usually are, are yeah. you, doesn't, you don't struggle to try to come up with, what was that again? No, it's just not, just generally that's true. That's true. It's, it's, you make it sound a lot more impressive than it really is. Okay. True. <laughs> you make it sound like a lot more useful life skill than it really is to know where Ace the Bat Hound first appeared. <laughs> it, that's what this show is all about, is exactly. making that knowledge useful. There you go. Well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here tonight as far as our game goes. You heard the question that we asked Jackie as a reminder. Helen, let's uh, go over those again. Uh, we asked Jackie, who was the presidential candidate that the amazing Spider-Man and teamed up with to defeat a villain. Helen, what did Jackie say? Jackie said Barack Obama. And Mark Wade, is that right? That would be incorrect. Who was the correct answer? That would be, and you'll remember this was accurate at the time, Stephen Colbert. That's right. He was running, oh, he was running for in South Carolina. That and you was, wrote a story about that's that. Right. Or there was a, and rather, there was a story written about yes. that. Uh, we asked Jackie who the villain was in that uh, arc. And Helen, what did Jackie say? Jackie said Norman Osborn. And? Well, no. What? Does Stephen Colbert hate more than anything? What's on his? What was on his list of things he hated? Bears. Bears. He fought the grizzly. Oh, I, I literally can picture. There you go. The Colbert. It's sitting at Earth Two comic book store. Yeah. Is what my where my pull list is. Right. It's the Col, it's Colbert fighting the grizzly bear. Yep. And then finally, uh, Helen, we asked Jackie who wrote that story. Helen, what did Jackie say? <laughs> Jackie said. <laughs> Mark. You just got ohated. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did. I yeah, aren't did. you glad Bobby wasn't in person now? Yeah. <laughs> Jackie well. said Dan 
Slot. And uh, Mark Wade, who did in fact write that? I'm afraid that was not Dan Slot. It was not. That was a young upstart named Mark Wade. <laughs> named Mark Wade, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my second guess was Kurt Busiek. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. okay. Uh, Mark, where did that story arc come from? How did that come to be? That was literally, we got a deal at Marvel to do a, a five-page Stephen Colbert story because he's in the Marvel, and he's, it was a deal. Stephen, uh, Joe Quesada, who uh, is a high ranker at Marvel, would go in and do the show a couple of times. And, you know, he's obviously a big Mark comics fan, so that was an opportunity that came around, and I couldn't pass that up. Excellent. And Mark, if people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they find you? I'll uh, see. I have markwade.com, and I'm doing uh, Doctor Strange in June. I'm doing Ant-Man in June. I am finishing up a Captain America run now. So I'm all over the place. Excellent. And if you want to talk to him about anything he or anyone else wrote, you know, you know who to ask. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's thank Mr. Mark Wade for being here. Mark Wade. You know, Mark Wade had such a good time meeting Jackie on our show that he appeared as a guest on her podcast, The Dork Forest. Speaking of Jackie Cation, her co-host on her Max Fun show, Lori Kilmartin, will be a guest on one of our special Max Fun Drive episodes of Go Fact Yourself. Mark, by the way, continues to write comics, mainly for DC these days. He's teased that he has a big project to be announced later this year, so keep an eye out on his social media to learn more. And speaking of DC comics, here's a bit from episode 102. Which was our 2022 Max Fun Drive episode. And featured Max Fun hosts John Hodgman and Danielle Radford. John spoke to us about his love of the DC series Legion of Superheroes. That is a title I had not heard of until the week before we recorded the show, but after hearing John talk about it, I can understand why he loved it, and you will too. John, you obviously did very well in that round, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. John, since first conceived in the 1950s, every member of the Legion has been humanoid, meaning that even if they were not human per se, they still walked around on two legs and had two arms and generally looked human-ish. But that changed in 1985, when the first two non-humanoids joined the Legion. For up to three points, who are these first two non-humanoids, and what writer created these two characters with artist Steve Lytle? One of them is an interdimensional creature who lives in a little vehicle. <laughs> Naturally. And I want to say that his name is Quisling. Okay. Quisling. But that's a different That's a different word. It's something like that. Something like Quisling. Okay. D- define non-humanoid again. Something that did not have two legs, two arms, and look humanish. So something that either had more or fewer legs and arms than two apiece. And there are two two of them, right? Yes. So the one that you said was something like Quisling. There was a psychic character named Tellus who's okay. sort of fish-like. Okay. But I think still pretty humanoid, but I can't think of anyone else who would fit the bill. So okay. I'm going to guess those two. Okay. And then we're looking for the writer who created those oh, two. Well, that would be Paul Levitz. Paul Levitz. Okay. Helen is taking note of your answers. We have an expert on the hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is an Eisner and Inkpot award-winning writer and editor who was president of DC Comics and whose work includes over a decade of writing Legion of Superheroes. It's Paul Levitz. Wow. Hello, Paul Levitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Paul. My pleasure. Hiya, John. Good to see you. You know, you know Danielle? Nice to meet you, Danielle. Hi. Look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. You both are freaking out. <laughs> My heart is beating so fast. Oh, that's so Aww. exciting. This seriously is what I think is like, you know I love Maine. You know I love cryptozoology. 
Like, what if it's Legion of Superheroes, and what if they get Paul Levitz to come no. on? That would be the greatest. Really? <laughs> Paul, you've written over 500 stories of iconic characters that include Batman and Superman. You've got sales of over 25 million copies of your stories, translations into over 20 languages, and you were president of DC Comics during the Dark Knight movie period. Tell us when you started writing for DC. How old were you? So I was 16 when I began what? freelancing for DC. I'm lucky. I was a New York kid. I was one of the first kids into comics. And in those days, before 9-11, before the security world, you pretty much could wander through the office if you had a reasonable (laughs) excuse. I just hung around there enough that I was the first kid past an editor's office after somebody quit writing their letter columns. Wow. And I got, got the gig. Moxie is what you had back then, Moxie. And then you were editing, not for DC, but you were editing comics by age 19. Tell us about how you ended up being the president of DC Comics. Was it unusual for someone from the creative side to have an executive position like that? There's only a few of us who, in comics, who really have deep backgrounds in creative who also ended up staying on the business side. Mm-hmm. I think I was a decent comic book writer. When I was writing Legion of Superheroes, it, for a long stretch, it was DC's second most profitable title. An honest run, certainly. He's a great writer. Don't let him pull this. <laughs> Paul, I'm told I cannot let you pull this. So please, you were a great writer. Great writer. Yeah. But there were very few people interested in business. Mm. And frankly, the parent company that owned us in the early 1980s didn't think DC Comics was a particularly meaningful business. Wow. So the idea of letting a 24-year-old become basically what was the chief operating officer of the company running the day-to-day side of the business, didn't come out as a screaming act of idiotcy to anyone who had the authority to stop it. And I certainly wasn't going to point out to them how ridiculous the idea was. I got about three decades as either the chief operating officer or ultimately as the chief executive officer of the company playing with some of my favorite toys. That's so cool. And writing a few of them on the side. One of your legacies that probably was a result of your having been a creator was that you were very uh, sure to give royalties and credit to people who created characters that later showed up in other media. Why was that important to you and why had that not been done already? That seems like a natural. The early days of the comic book industry treated creative people generally very poorly. There were Mm. a few creators who managed to get deals where they had some sort of good financial stake in their property. And it showed in the comics. People weren't bringing their best ideas to work. Jeanette Kahn, who was the president of the company before me and one of my mentors, came in from outside the industry. She thought this was insane. And between us, we figured out how to give people equity in their characters, royalties on the sales, bonuses when it was some weird thing that was being used in a movie that that's there's something there. We used your stuff. We owe you something. What the hell do we owe you for doing this thing? Mm. And I know that would meant a lot to the creators themselves. Our our late mutual friend, Len Wein, was quoted as saying, every time I see Paul Levitz, I kiss him. Len was a more successful writer, a better writer than I am. He had written a Batman story introducing this new character called Lucius Fox. Mm -hmm. At the time, DC had a system whereby you could get a financial equity in a new character. I said, Len, you should get one on Lucius Fox. Ultimately, Lucius Fox role in the Christopher Nolan movies paid for his house Mm. vastly more than he made from his work creating Wolverine or co-creating Wolverine. Oh, that's interesting. He got more from Lucius Fox than from creating Wolverine. By a factor of 10, probably. Wow. What? Are you kidding me? And were all of his characters based on small carnivores? Wolverine, Fox? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. Like a, a Dan Weasel in there. Well, speaking was... of speaking of a lot of eccentric characters, let's talk about Legion of Superheroes. Uh, how did you view it as different from the other comics that you had written for? So I grew up on the Legion, mm-hmm. and a lot of what John said I bought into totally. The depth of the science fiction, the multiplicity of the characters just made it a really great playground for a writer. When you write Superman, you're pretty sure Lois Lane's going to make it at the end of the story. She's going to be okay. <laughs> when you write the Legion of Superheroes, you can kill Karate Kid. And in fact, I did. <laughs> His wife can get really pissed about that because you know, spouses sometimes do get annoyed when their yeah. spouse is killed. When you have hundreds of characters, some of them are a little expendable. Exactly. That's and great. it made for a much, much more dramatic environment to play with as a writer. Well, speaking of Legion of Superheroes, uh, you heard our discussion about that controversial story about the hyphen. Can you confirm or deny Danielle's theory about the hyphen being removed or inserted in Legion of Superheroes? Actually, Danielle, I'm sorry to say that that's not quite the, the legal basis. <laughs> Am I wrong? Uh, oh. Marvel tried to trademark the word superheroes back in the day. But it uniquely became one of the very few trademarks in the entire world that's co-owned by two companies, Marvel and DC. Oh my God, you're so right. You're so right. I'm so sorry. No, you're so right. And that's why in other things, they call them science heroes. I I should, I mean, obviously you would. (laughs) That's all right. Obviously you would not. I'm sorry. I'm also like nerd girding out right now. Danielle Danielle has been quietly freaking out the whole time you've been. (laughs) I am sitting under the learning tree right now. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. More than happy to do do lunch, Danielle, and let you nerd out in person and tell you some more stories. He said it. I heard it. We have it on record. It's been recorded. Well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned and then talk a little bit more about these topics. Uh, We wanted to know from John, who were the first two non-humanoids to show up in the Legion of Superheroes comics. What was the first answer that John gave, Helen? John said Quisling. And Paul? So there was a very famous trader to Norway named Vikan Quisling, who was a Norwegian who cooperated with the Nazis and helped the Nazis rule Norway after they invaded there. And in fact, that legionnaire that John referred to, a little guy, basically an energy creature living in a metal spaceship, was named after Vikan Quisling because I wanted people to suspect that perhaps he was a traitor. Mm-hmm. But his name instead was Quizlet. Ah, oh, oh. Quizlet. Oh. So do you want to give John a half a point for that? I would give him half credit. I mean, that's the that's where the name comes from. Okay, so. half a point because he did get the he did get the derivation. I'm sorry, John. You're going to have to accept that half. Point. I knew I was wrong, and I reject that half point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you, Paul. You can Venmo no. it to me. Yeah, you can Venmo. <laughs> a lot of Venmoing of points today. Because I knew Quisling was a pejorative term for a traitor, and I knew mm-hmm. that the character could not right. have been named Quisling. But it's the only thing that I mm. could remember. Uh, Helen, what was the next answer that John gave as far as the non-humanoid character? John said, "Tell us." And uh, Mr. Levitz? Was indeed sort of a giant telepathic fish creature. Very good. A full point there for John. And finally, we wanted to know who was the writer who created with Steve Lytle those two characters. Helen, what did John say? Without hesitation, John said Paul Levitz. And? Guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) That's what a judge likes to hear in his courtroom. Another full point for John Hodgman. John, while we have Paul here, is there anything that you would like to ask or say to him? Anytime you want a teleconference with me, you're welcome to do so. But I look very much forward to getting back together with you in person. A pleasure, John. Soon, now I hope. That, now that that seems to be possible soon. And Danielle, you should come along because it's a good time. That would be fun. Don't threaten me with a good time. No. <laughs> well, Danielle, I want to give you a chance. I did not know that you also were a fan. So I want to give you a chance. Is there anything you'd like to ask or say to Paul Levitz? Oh, here, here we go. Whomst would you cast as Booster Gold? 
So wow. I'm going to tell a story on myself to explain why I'm no okay. good at this. I had a great time working with Chris Nolan on the Dark Knight movies and Zack Snyder on Watchmen, some of the other projects. But basically, my main effort with any of them was more on the script and on the mythology. I suck at things like casting. <laughs> I walk into the office of the executive at Warner Brothers, who's responsible for Batman Begins, a guy named Greg Silverman. And Greg's all excited. Paul, it's great. We got Gary Oldman to play Commissioner Gordon. And I say, that's great. What's he been in? <laughs> and Greg says... He won an Oscar, Paul. I said, I'm not doubting that he's terrific, Greg. I'm just not a movie guy, and I'd like to look at something specific that he's been in. And they immediately sent you Sid and Nancy, I presume. Uh, <laughs> and he said, that's our commissioner. <laughs> Paul, it's been so wonderful that you've joined us. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they do that? The website is paullevitz.com, which is in the middle of being refurbished, but hopefully is working at the moment. And I'll pick up on something John mentioned about his roommate, Barry Liga. Barry put together recently a anthology of short stories of young people with extraordinary powers called Generation Wonder. It will be out in June from Amulet Books. And my first ever piece of prose nonfiction is a short story in that. And a bunch of more experienced fiction writers have contributed to it as well. You can't stop him from writing those great stories. We're so happy that you joined us. Paul Levitz, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you, Paul. Yay. Thanks, everybody. Yay, indeed. Quizlet. Quizlet. I'll never forget again, I promise. <laughs> Paul Levitz is now four years into his retirement. If you'd like to read some of his works, you can find more details at paullevitz.com. All right, let's switch back over to Marvel superheroes. Here's a clip from episode 38 of Mindy Sterling versus Dylan Brody. Dylan knows a lot about X-Men and specifically the work of writer Chris Claremont. So who could we possibly get as his expert? Expert? X-Men? I see what you're doing there. Ha <laughs> ha. All right, Dylan, you struggled a little bit toward the end, but you can bounce back with this. Here is your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. The correct answer is worth up to three points. Dylan, the uncanny X-Men number 123 opens with Spider-Man lamenting how broke he is because he just paid his taxes. He then runs into one of the X-Men with a romantic interest in Greenwich Village for up to three points. Who are those two lovebirds? And what well-known writer is seen in the background during this encounter? I imagine it would be Colossus and Kitty... All right. Oh, no, it, it, it would have to be, uh, no, it would be Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Okay, Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Yes. Um, I'm going to say uh, John Michener. John Michener. All right, so to summarize, your answers are, it was Scott Summers, it was Jean Grey, and Michener? Michener. And Michener, all right. No compliment on my say that, say that summarizing there? Hemingway. Hemingway. I'm going to say Hemingway. You're changing your answer. I'm changing my answer to Hemingway. Because okay. he's the only person I can imagine being, being recognizable in a comic book panel. All right. Are those your, your answers locked in now? You're no, Stephen King. I'm going to oh. go with Stephen King. I'm going to go with John Gray, uh, uh, Scott Summers, Jean Grey, and that would be Cyclops and uh, uh, Marvel Girl later to become Phoenix. And uh, uh, Stephen King. Okay. 
I think there's a period at the end of that sentence. I'm going to go with it. All right. Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Here with us tonight, via phone from Chicago, is a New York Times bestselling author, Eisner Award-winning comics industry hall of famer, and co-writer of the best-selling comic book issue of all time, it's Chris Claremont! Chris Claremont! Hello, Chris Claremont. Are you there? I sure hope so. Now, Chris Claremont, I believe I've heard of you in the name of this topic that we're discussing this evening. I'm sorry, what topic? (laughs) Chris Claremont, this is Dylan Brody, and before we go any further with this show, thank you so much for existing. (laughs) Well, so far, so good. (laughs) I would would say so. Uh, Tell us what you're doing in Chicago at the moment. Trying to recover from three days of conventioning at C2E2. That's right, that's the Chicago Comic and Entertainment Expo. What do you do there when you're conventioning? Well, usually walk around and see friends and enjoy the, the weekend. Uh, this was rather surprisingly different. I spent three days sitting in a chair greeting an endless column of readers and fans. How lovely. Uh, was, oh, no, it was wonderful. It was sort of like a contest between me and George Perez across the aisle <laughs> to see whose line was longer and never-ending. Who, who won that contest? Oh, George, obviously. Oh, all right. George, well, there you go. much cooler than I am. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm taking a risk saying what I'm about to say because I may get booed, but I have never read an X-Men comic. But I have heard of characters like Legion, the New Mutants, Rogue, Gambit, Sabretooth, Kitty Pride, the White Queen, all of which you created. And as of four days ago, they are now property once more of Marvel uh, Entertainment. Oh, and that's fantastic. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes. So, um, yeah, we just, made the, we just made the Murdochs very, very rich. <laughs> well, how does, how does that affect you, and how do you, how do you see these characters being uh, integrated going forward? Well, there's, there's this big event happening in the Marvel uni- film universe this year, and it would pr- kind of help everybody if at the end of it, when Thanos went back to wherever he goes. Suddenly, there were a whole bunch of new heroes for the Marvel <laughs> Universe to play with. Well, and since the Fantastic Four are the flagship characters of Marvel and of Marvel Comics, and the X Men kind of took that role a decade later, I think that it's only fitting that they should be back where they belong. I, I very much uh, want to live in your brain. <laughs> uh, well, let's go back a little bit about how you first got involved. How, how did you get the gig uh, writing the X-Men? I wrestled Len Wein to the floor and said, give me it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do know who Len Wein was. Len, let, for those who don't, tell us about who Len Wein was at the time, and then we'll talk about how Len uh, has, has a lot of connection with this show. Well, Len Wein was the first writer of, of the revived X-Men. As, but unfortunately, he had a day job, which was editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. And I was his associate editor, so I lived, basically, my desk was right outside his office. And he, unlike Stan, he, for, he would often not close his door. So I'm sitting there listening to Len and Dave Cockrum plot Giant Size X-Men number one. And every few hour, minutes, Len would look up and I'd be inside the office taking notes. <laughs> and... Where I got involved was in the first issue that Dave and Len were doing, they had to get rid of this living island in the South Pacific because that's where all living islands live, in the South Pacific. Uh, And I just sat there and said, well, yeah, well, you know, it's a fiery neighborhood. And uh, it was a volcano. And I said, well, you know, it's a rock that sticks its head up out of the ocean, yes, 
So why don't you just cut the rock and let, let it float away into space? And they, Len looks at me as if I'm an idiot, but I, you know, I said, look, you've got 14 X-Men, including Polaris and you know, a bunch of other characters. They could use their powers and just punch it out of the atmosphere, and then the Earth orbiting the sun will just leave it behind in a matter of minutes. You know, Dave looked at Len, Len looked at Dave, and they both said, well, works for me. Wow. And that was how they got rid of Krakoa. <laughs> so, yeah, what happened soon after was Len decided to leave his position as editor-in-chief, probably because somebody kept kicking in the door and saying, I have a better idea. And unfortunately, his severance package as writer of the top four monthly titles we published then didn't leave him time enough to do the bi-monthly X-Men. Ah. And so he said, you know, he was going to offer it to whoever was outside his door, and I didn't even give him the chance. I just said, I want the book. Heck, he, he caved and let me do it, and <laughs> I've been incredibly grateful, and he's been incredibly pissed ever since. <laughs> the thing with Len is he created some of the primal franchises of comic book history, both for DC and for Marvel, and it, it's something that should never be forgotten, we should be standing up and saying, there's Len, the 1970s equivalent of Stan, because both DC and Marvel have benefited from his, his creativity, his brilliance, his inspiration, and dang it, he deserves it. Absolutely. I think we can all agree with that. Um, I should say, you know, I don't know a lot about comic books, but I, I definitely have a connection with Len. He was, he was actually a very good pal, and uh, the show is a connection with Len. When we first did a pilot episode of this show, Len was one of our guests. Uh, it was just a few months before he, he passed away, but Len was, was, was a great pal, and um, I'm happy to say that Len's widow, Christine, is our show's photographer. She's here with us tonight. <laughs> And, uh, and helped arrange us to, to be able to talk with you tonight. Uh, and so I, I know it means a lot to, to Christine. It means a lot to me to, to be able to hear you speak uh, so kindly about Len and the fact that a lot of people, including myself, can speak so glowingly about him with no connection whatsoever to his work, you know, just, just as a person. Well, it's not kindness. It's the truth. Mm. With Len, it's easy. Yeah. Helen mentioned in your introduction that you are the co-writer of the best-selling comic book issue of all time. That was, uh, was that issue number one of the new X-Men? X-Men 1, yeah. X-Men, oh, the X-Men second 1. iteration. Uh, that's amazing. They sold, if, if I've read this correctly, over 7.5 million issues. Uh, it's incredible. How, how did you find out that this was taking off and, and was setting this record? Well, technically, it's 7.9 copies of an 8.2 print run. But who's counting? I'm certainly, I'm certainly not. <laughs> that's a, wait, so they, they, knew, uh, they anticipated needing 8.2 million copies of that issue? Chris Claremont no, no, no. was writing X-Men. They knew they needed copies. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Hey, well, no, what happened was we were starting this new series. I was writing it. Jim Lee was drawing it. And in those days, what you did was send out the solicitation sheet to comic book retailers across the country, of which there were a great many in those days, and everybody ordered. They ordered what they thought they would sell. And apparently they thought they would sell a lot. And to everyone's surprise, they did. <laughs> and... No one was more surprised than us because it was like, wow, we were happy in the days when we, we sold a half million copies of this issue. Cool. Yeah. And then suddenly the numbers just went through the roof and we were like, wow, this is really cool. Absolutely. Uh, Dylan, is there anything you'd like to ask or say to Chris Claremont besides thanking him for existing? Uh, yeah. Didn't no, cover? The, the stuff that went on during the, the, Dark Phoenix Saga, uh, 
allowed me to feel as though there was a, a place for my imagination and my inner life in the world at a time when I desperately needed that connection. And it was so important to me uh, that I, I, I am genuinely moved to be having you on the phone with me. So thank you for agreeing to do this. I shouldn't laugh. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm, I'm awestruck to be asked. It's like, I just write comic books. What's going on here? As, <laughs> as long as everybody in the conversation feels awkward and awestruck, I think we're doing fine. All right. Well, let's get to the reason why we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Dylan. We wanted to know in X-Men number 123, who were the two lovebirds that Spider-Man encountered in Greenwich Village? Helen, what was the name of the X-Men that Dylan gave as an answer? Dylan said Scott Summers. And uh, Mr. Claremont? That's right. That's correct. That's one point for Dylan. Yes. Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, uh, was that uh, X-Men. Uh, next, we wanted to know who was the romantic interest uh, that was with Scott Summers. Helen, what did Dylan say? Dylan said Jean Grey. And Chris Claremont? Oh, gee. Not quite. No. Who it was, was it? actually Colleen Wing. Oh, oh sure. Wing. No, yes. Sure. That makes sense now, but now it's, <laughs> now it's too late. Uh, and then finally, we wanted to know... Uh. Who was the well-known writer who was seen in the background? Helen, what did Dylan eventually say? Dylan eventually said Stephen King. And Chris Claremont? Well, Stephen King did sell a novel to a publisher that got them to reject my novel submitted at the same time <laughs> with, a, with a similar content. So naturally but, you wanted to put him in the comic. Yeah. No, who was it in the uh, background? Well, oh, it was me taking notes. It was him. It was Chris Claremont. How about that? Yeah. Uh, well, how do you... This, what do you think? This is all fiction? <laughs> we go around taking notes. Haven't you ever read Stan's issues? Stan and Jack would follow the, X, the FF around and take notes and draw pictures, and that's how I would do it with the X-Men. Comics are fun, aren't they? I, uh, all right, Chris, I could talk with you all night, and I'm sure Dylan could as well, but we do have to move on. If people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they go? Uh, basically, ChrisClaremont.com, because I still haven't figured out the Internet. That, you figured out plenty, believe me. We're certainly happy to have you, Mr. Chris Claremont, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Claremont returned to writing the X-Men this past February. His new series is entitled Wolverine Madripoor Knights. It's a celebration of the character's 50th anniversary. Man, those are some ex-old men. <laughs> well, you know, no tribute to the art of comic books would be complete without a cliffhanger. Here's one now. We'll be back after this break with more comic book segments on this best of edition of Go Fact Yourself. Dun, dun, dun. I'm Emily Fleming. And I'm Jordan Morris. We're real comedy writers. And real friends. And real cheapskates. We say, why subscribe to expensive streaming services when you can stream tons of insane movies online for free? Yeah, as long as you're fine with 25 randomly inserted, super loud car insurance commercials. On our podcast, Free With Ads, we review streaming movies from the darkest corner of the internet's bargain bin. From the good to the weird to the holy, look at Van Damme's big old butt. Free with ads, a free podcast about free movies that's worth the price of admission. Every Tuesday on MaximumFun.org or your favorite pod spot. Helen, another ad for Miracle Made? 
Yes, and that's great news because it means that our listeners are trying Miracle Made Sheets. That not only supports our show, it supports our listeners in their quest to have a great night of sleep. Oh, I am all for that. You know, Helen, you and I each have our own set of Miracle Made Sheets, and they are great. But why? Because they are inspired by NASA. Miracle Made uses silver-infused fabrics and makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Yes, yes. Those sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. And fresher is better. And bacteria is gross. Super gross. Bacteria can clog your pores, cause breakouts and acne, but you can sleep clean with Miracle. Plus, Miracle-made sheets are luxuriously comfortable without that high price tag of some other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. Helen, how do our listeners try Miracle-made sheets? Go to trymiracle.com slash gofact to try Miracle-made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you ordered today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code GOFACT at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So many percents. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Whoa. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash gofact and use the code gofact to claim your three-piece towel set and save over 40%. That's why we say, thank thank you, you, Miracle Miracle Hallelujah! Hello! Welcome, everyone! Step right up. We're going to heal you. We are the healers, Ross and Carrie. Yes, yes. You there. You look like you're upset. Come up here. Yes, you are healed because you've listened to our podcast. Yes. Have you been having trouble with demons? Are you sleeping too much? Too little? Just right? We have the solution. It is to listen to Oh Oh No, no, Ross and and Carrie. A show where we examine unusual claims. We show up so you don't have to. Find us on MaximumFun.org. We won't actually heal you. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself's Best of Comic Books Special. I'm Helen Hong. And I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. You know, comic books have leapt off the page and become the basis of some of the most popular media in our culture. You almost can't escape Marvel characters these days. Movies, TV shows. Even this podcast. Here's a clip from episode 60, one of our last recordings before COVID hit, with Anne Magnuson and Hal Lublin, and Hal's love of Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All right, you did very well in that round, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. Yeah. (laughs) We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. Good boy. Hal, in Captain America Civil War, Captain America's former friend, the Winter Soldier, acts a little weird. It turns out he's been brainwashed. His brainwashed behavior can be triggered by ten different words or phrases in Russian for up to three points... Let us get to the question, please. <laughs> For up to three points, name any three of those trigger words in English. Uh, oh, boy. Or Russian, if you want to uh, show off. Uh, well, the expert know the Russian. 
We'll find out. <laughs> if uh, not, we have a Russian speaker on hand, obviously. You yes. can help us. I can tell you later. <laughs> yeah, I... Oh, boy. I'm drawing a complete blank on any right, of the words. Do you want me to just say might, some? Yeah. Um, well, you know, give us some thought. Think of words that might be associated sure. uh, with They're all, series. like, sort of odd objects. There's mm-hmm. no kind of direct meaning to them. Okay. Um, I'll say, um... Apple. I know that's wrong. Okay. Um... <laughs> Uh, waterfall, also incorrect. <laughs> and a third uh, would be uh, ladder, definitely wrong. Just to make sure you heard the question, yeah. we do want the correct answer. You, oh! <laughs> that's what I misheard. Yeah. Yeah. I, those are, I, those that's are, what you're going to stick I'm with. Guess. It's Apple, Waterfall, waterfall and, and ladder. ladder. All correct. Oh, yes, yes, yes. All right. Allie is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. <laughs> Allie, who do we have tonight? Here with us tonight, via Skype from his home in Beloit, Wisconsin, is a New York Times best-selling author whose books include The Marvel Encyclopedia, The Marvel Avengers Encyclopedia, and Captain America, The Ultimate Guide to the First Avenger. It's Matt Forbeck. Matt Forbeck. Hey, hey. Mr. Forbeck, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. It's wonderful. To, uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are things in Beloit, Wisconsin? Chilly. Okay, <laughs> uh, that checks out. Uh, so in addition to uh, the books that Ali mentioned, you've also written over 30 novels uh, and also games. Uh, you've designed collectible card games, role-playing games, board games, and logic systems for toys. I, of course, know what that means. Why don't you tell everybody else, what is a logic system for toys? Uh, for instance, one of them I did was a uh, Star Trek utility role-playing belt for kids based on the 2009 movie. And it had a logic system in it that you would actually be able to hear the voice of Starfleet Command would tell you to go out and do different missions at various points, right? Yeah. But, I mean, sure, uh, I don't know. <laughs> there's like 90 seconds worth of sound in it. I knew that if I just gave 90 seconds worth of sound, I would kill my children after about three days of this. So <laughs> uh, I asked them, because I'm a game designer, if I could actually put in a um, random adventure generator. And they said, sure, we'll have some programmer do it in an assembly code or whatever, but just give us a flow chart and we can pull it off. And I ended up doing this thing that had eight beginnings, eight endings, and then choosing three to five choices off a list of 30 different mission complications. And suddenly we had somewhere around 1,200 different wow. uh, variations. So I saved the lives of children everywhere. <laughs> Very well done. Uh, you've, you've won lots of awards for the games that you've designed. What's the key to a good board game? Any game is really a series of interesting choices. And if you can have something that's interesting for people to play, even when it's not their turn, I think that's really an amazing uh, way to have a, a game succeed. But really the uh, point of any game is to have fun with your friends. You know, It's a good excuse to get together with people and joke with them around a table and enjoy your time together. Do you think we could make a go-fact-yourself home game? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I heard one audible gasp from the audience. I think we've got our next uh, Max Fun Drive uh, giveaway item. That's great. So let's talk about these Marvel books that you've done. How, how did you come to write these, this Marvel encyclopedia, the Avengers encyclopedia, and this uh, book about Captain America? Well, I've been a comic book reader since I was a little kid. In fact, I learned how to read on Spidey Comics way back in the 70s. And uh, I just love them. Uh, so I ended up going to Comic-Con. I worked with Jim Lee over at uh, Wildstorm back when it was a division of Image Comics. I developed the Wildstorm's collectible card game for him, and he would take me to Comic-Con to help demonstrate the games. And one year I happened to wander by the DK Publishing booth, and I said, you guys don't need anybody who loves comics over here, do you? And they said, sure, give us a card. You know, you do this at a convention, and you figure, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100, nothing actually comes of it. But three months later, I got an email from their head editor saying, would you be interested in doing the next edition of the Marvel Encyclopedia? And I'm, 
the answer, the only answer you could actually come up with a question to that is yes. Of yes, <laughs> I would do it too, and I don't know anything about Marvel. That would be a very interesting encyclopedia. What was the research process like for that project? You know, uh, as a friend of mine says, how long did you study for this? And the question, the answer is really your entire life, right? <laughs> but then a lot of it's, you know, uh, researching on Wikipedia and different wikis and then doing primary research with the actual comic books because, mm. believe it or not, wiki entries are not always accurate. It's hard to... What do you yeah. mean? Yeah, I've, I've, I learned recently that I did not die in 1987. So, <laughs> yeah. What were some of the surprising things that you found in, in researching these uh, Marvel comics or for any of the books that you've done? Well, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of the, an interesting one about Captain America, for instance, is that Stan Lee originally got his job because his uncle owned Marvel Comics, right? Mm -hmm. So he was brought into work as like a 16, 17-year-old kid, and he would annoy people by playing the ocarina around the office. <laughs> and eventually, somebody said, give the kid something to do. And so he, his first published fiction was actually in Captain America Comics number three. Mm. He wrote a prose story, not even a comic book story, a prose story. And because he was bent on becoming the great American novelist at some point, he used a uh, pen name. His real name is Stanley Lieber. And he called himself Stan Lee so he could save his real name for his, his uh, serious work when he finally wrote it, which never actually happened. That's interesting. Uh, Stan Lee actually ended up writing the foreword for one of your books. He did. He actually wrote a forward to the Captain America book, and he wrote forwards to the Marvel Encyclopedia as well. That's really cool. That's so cool. Uh, so Marvel Encyclopedia ended up being a New York Times bestseller. Uh, congratulations on that. How, how do Thank you? you. Yeah. Woo! Uh, how do you find out that that uh, a book that you worked on gains that status? <laughs> you find it online, right? <laughs> Google alert, and most Google alerts are somebody stealing your book online. You know, yeah. uh, every now and then you get one that says, "Hey, by the way, Publisher Weekly says that you're actually uh, did pretty well this month." So, oh, really? It was uh, just a, a Google alert. That's great. Uh, and uh, what? Tell us what you're working on these days. You got a, a new novel coming out, I understand. Yeah, I just had a book come out that called Shotguns and Sorcery: The Omnibus, which is a collection of these fantasy noir stories that I do. Uh, so a big hardcover omnibus just came out with the ebook last week. And uh, my next book is actually going to be a novel for Minecraft Dungeons, which is a new video game from the people who do Minecraft. And that'll be out in July. That's so cool. Uh, you heard Hal describe his theory about why he likes Captain America so much, how he adjusts in a changing world. How do you view Captain America as he's portrayed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe over the years? I think he's fantastic. I think they're very faithful to the original vision of the creators, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Cap was originally created as an answer to Adolf Hitler by a couple of Jewish kids in New York, right? Mm. And a lot of people say, keep politics out of comics. But comics have always been political, starting even before Captain America, but particularly with Captain America. And I think it's wonderful to see that continue to this day. That's terrific. Yeah. yeah. Just to be clear, our show has been uh, anti-Hitler almost from the beginning. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Hal. We wanted to know three of the ten trigger words that can uh, set the Winter Soldier off. Uh, Allie, what was the first word that Hal thinks he got wrong? Apple. Is apple correct? And sadly not. No, I'm sorry. No point there. Uh, what was the next word that Hal said, Allie? Waterfall. Uh, and Mr. Forbeck? Uh, no, that again. Sorry. Not that again. I'm sorry. It, uh, and then finally, what was the last one that he said, Allie? Ladder. And Mr. Forbeck? Not even close. I'm sorry, Hal. On the bright side, you were right that you were wrong. I'll take it. You'll take it. All right. Uh, do you have the words uh, with you there, what those ten words were? They are longing, rusted, furnace, daybreak, 17, benign, 9, homecoming, 1, 
and freight car. So close. <laughs> so close. You know what? You've got to use a ladder to get to most of those. Yeah. They all have letters. They certainly Very do. Very similar. Uh, Hal, is there anything you'd like to ask our expert while we have him here? G- uh, yeah, what's your favorite Captain America movie? I'm curious. As an expert. Well, I think Civil War is fantastic. It was really, as you said, a breakout movie for the Ru- for the Russos, but also just because of the, uh, the Robert Redford and the Three Days of the Condor stuff going on. It was fantastic. It really up the level of all Marvel movies from that point on, I think. High five. High five. <laughs> High five over Skype. Uh, Mr. Forbeck, it's wonderful that you joined us. If people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they go? They can go to Forbeck.com, F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. They can also find me on Twitter at mforbeck. Excellent. It's wonderful that you joined us. Thank you so much. Matt Forbeck, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> For even more MCU love, you can go listen to episode 115 with Rob Corddry talking about his love of the TV show Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. In that same episode, Mimi Pond gets to show off on her love of the comics-adjacent Mad Magazine. And finally, let's wrap up with the character who's the favorite of our editor and associate producer, Julian. That, of course, is Spider-Man. I think Julian actually might be Spider-Man. I have never seen the two of them in the same room at the same time. Helen, please, that's his secret identity. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry, Julian. Never mind, never mind, never mind. Just, just edit that part out. Yes, I'm sure he will. All right, here's a clip from episode 132, a Zoom recording with writer Jill Twist and comedian Mike Kaplan and his love of a certain webbed crime fighter who may or may not be our editor and associate producer. All right, you did quite well in that, Mike, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Spider-Man's existence is both enriched and complicated by the women in his life, from Aunt May to Gwen Stacy to Mary Jane Watson to the Black Cat, his sometimes nemesis, sometimes love interest. For up to three points, what is the Black Cat's alter ego? What injury does Spider-Man sustain when she causes a wall to fall on him in her first issue in 1979? And what writer and editor co-created the Black Cat with artists Keith Pollard and Dave Cockrum? Her alter ego is Felicia Hardy. Okay. The injury that he sustained when she dropped a wall on him, I'm going to say broken ribs. uh, Broken ribs? That's a shot in the dark for sure. And uh, I'll say that the editor is Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco. All right. Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is a legendary and award-winning comics writer and editor whose many accomplishments include creating the character of Black Cat (laughs) in Spider-Man. It's Marv Wolfman. Uh, Hello, Marv Wolfman. Hello, Marv Wolfman. (laughs) Hi. So wonderful that you joined us. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Well, Marv, my goodness, we'll talk about Spider-Man specifically in a moment. But for our listeners, just to understand, you were an editor-in-chief at Marvel. You've written for animation, plus for thousands of comics, including Tomb of Dracula, Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and Wonder Woman. You've created or co-created characters, including the new Teen Titans, Blade, Bullseye, Phantasm, Nova, Nightwing, and Vigilante. You've won the Inkpot Award, three Eagle Awards, two Jack Kirby Awards, and have been inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame. 
not too shabby. And that's why I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was good work that got you there. I was curious to find out that of all of the thousands of comics that you've written for, uh, you found Fantastic Four to be your favorite? No, Fantastic Four was my favorite comic as a reader. Oh, as a reader, okay. As a writer, mm-hmm. I actually had the most problems with the Fantastic Four. Oh, tell us about that. They're my favorite characters in terms of Marvel Comics at that time. Spider-Man was number one. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four was two. But as a book, Fantastic Four was fabulous. But it's a very, very tricky set of characters to to work out as time goes by because there's a lot of very weird things that go place in the – that happen in the Fantastic Four that aren't easy to bring up to date. So it took me quite a while to learn how to write that character. Spider-Man, I, I was able to do right away. Oh, interesting. Well, let, let's talk about that. Uh, you wrote around 20 issues of Spider-Man back in that era. How much of what you wrote do you actually remember when people talk to you about it? I remember basically the stuff, but I don't remember specific stories in Spider-Man mm-hmm. because I was trying to figure out how to handle the character. Right. So I was worried about how to tell the stories. I didn't want to be the guy who screwed it up. <laughs> so I really had to figure out how Spider-Man worked and what you had to do to make him work. So I was really concerned about that more than necessarily the little problems along the way. Sure. So was there a particular key that unlocked that for you that you realized, aha, that's how you write for Spider-Man? When you realize that Peter Parker cannot succeed, that every time he's so close to victory, he falls back Mm. and fails that's where you begin with Spider-Man. It seemed that a lot of what your acclaim from that time was was that you focused on Spider-Man's personal relationships. Uh, you, right. you famously had him propose to Mary Jane. Uh, you had him meet this character, Black Cat. Um, how did you approach weaving these romantic stories into the action of these comic books? My view has always been as a writer that by the time you've read comics for two years, you've read every mm-hmm. fight scene. <laughs> you've read pretty much all of that stuff. So the only thing of real interest that changes constantly are characters. Mm. You have to make the characters stronger. You have to make the characters work. You have to find the things that the characters love. And then you have to find the things that the characters are afraid of or hate. Mm. Stan and Steve Ditko really concentrated on the character of Peter Parker and all the secondary characters in that book. And I was trying to follow Stan. So where did the idea of Black Cat and her alter ego come from? Well, I've mentioned this a lot of times that most people don't believe it. Mm -hmm. There's an old cartoon by Tex Avery called Bad Luck Blackie about a black cat who causes bad luck. And I'm watching the cartoon. Tex Avery is one of the best animation directors ever. And I go, this could be a real villain. This could be a real character. And made the black cat, created the black cat. What was interesting about the Black Cat, too, was it was the very first female villain that Spider-Man fought in all the years that he had been published mm-hmm. before then. Wow. And that was about 20 years up to that point. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you've also kind of essentially recreated some classic characters as well. I know you're famous for what you've done with Lex Luthor. Tell us about the approach that you took with changing that character in a way that really opened up the stories for Superman comics more. Well, as I say, I've been reading comics since the 1950s, and every time you saw Lex... He was in a gray suit in prison. Mm -hmm. And then he would somehow take out a weapon that he hid in his teeth or something, (laughs) create a giant robot and would break out of prison. And then he'd have a fight with Superman and Superman would beat up the robot (laughs) and destroy it and take Luther back to prison. I'm going, if Luther could create a giant robot who could do that, why is he bothering to commit crimes? He'd make more money. He'd make more money designing giant robots who are deadly. 
you know, he could sell them to the military or stuff. So my view was that let's get rid of all that. Let's get rid of that nonsense. Let him be a businessman. Let him be a genius scientist still. But he was so smart, Superman could never figure out mm. what he was doing or how he was going to commit a crime or whatever. He was smarter than Superman. Superman never had to worry about being super intelligent. Mm. He had all of his powers. <laughs> Luther's powers were that he was the smartest man on the planet. You made him a capitalist, the ultimate evil. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And because business, he could be legal. Mm. And so in between the business stuff, he could be doing all the uh, all the bad stuff. But you, uh, just, he's so smart, you can't figure it out. Just like our current capitalists. You were yeah, really on the forefront, uh, ahead of the game uh, of the hating the evil billionaire. Yeah, I always believe in that. <laughs> it's been said that second to Stan Lee, you maybe have created more characters that have been seen in TVs and movies and toys and animation than anyone else. Um, I'm curious, are, are, are there any characters that uh, you helped create that you were surprised caught on or maybe surprised didn't catch on? I was surprised at how much people really love the Deathstroke character. Because mm. I didn't think... I love the character, mm -hmm. and I think he's one of the more nuanced villains that are out there, but I didn't think that's the sort of nuance that I gave him. Married, kids, a lot of different things like that that would go over with the readers, mm. but they embraced him more than I possibly could have expected. And because I loved the character, I was thrilled. And on the flip side, was there a character that you thought, well, this one's going to be in all of the lunchboxes and didn't quite make it there? Yeah, I created one for uh, Daredevil when I was writing Daredevil called The Torpedo. And I really thought he would take off and nobody was interested. Aww. So after about the second appearance, I just never used him again. <laughs> sometimes I win, sometimes Thanks, you win, sometimes you don't. Yes, very good. And then last I want to ask you about, um, your name is Marv Wolfman, which sounds like a comic book name. <laughs> it's, it seems like you were destined to do what you do. No, I think they named comic book characters after me, not the oh, other that, Oh, is that what it was? Okay, very good. <laughs> but uh, I understand that um, that being your real name led in a roundabout way to writers getting credits in comics. Can you mind telling that story? It's a funny one because back in the 1960s, when I broke into comics, I started in 1967 as a comic writer. When you were writing books like House of Mystery and House of Secrets, which were little sort of semi-horror books, mm -hmm. as, uh, if you want to call them that, nobody ever got credit. But what these, the way they worked was three different stories in an issue, and you had a host character who would introduce each story. Mm -hmm. to the reader. So you'd have an eight-page story, but first the host would lead you to it. So the host character, because they knew that I wrote the story that was coming up, Jerry Conway, who wrote those interstitial pages, wrote the following story, was told to me by a wandering wolfman. He, it was a joke. Mm -hmm. It was sent to the comics code, as you had to do back then. And they said, you can't use that, you can't use that because we are not allowing werewolves or vampires or any of those in the comics. And DC said, that's his name. <laughs> it's truly his name. And they said, well, then you're going to have to put a credit line on it. And once I got the credit line on it, all the other writers wanted it as well. Wow. That is so cool. It's because your name was so cool. You changed the whole industry. <laughs> What's interesting is you can't see it. But right over there is the page of artwork from the page that has the Mark Wolfman credit for the first time. Oh, wow. I, I hung wow. it up on my wall and it's always been there. And what was it like to see your name in print on a comic for the first time? Really cool. Yeah, I can see, really cool. I can see a huge smile on your face now. 
<laughs> Still thinking about it. All right, well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the questions that we asked of Mike. First, we wanted to know, in reference to the black cat, what is the black cat's alter ego? Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said Felicia Hardy. And Marv? Thumbs up. Yes, thumbs up. That is correct for the point. Very nice, Mike. Next, we wanted to know what injury does Spider-Man sustain when she causes a wall to fall on him in her first issue from 1979? Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said broken ribs. And Marv? Dislocated arm. Yes. Sorry. Ah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that, Mike. I understand. Yes. I'm I'm sorry that I didn't retain it. No, that's all right. Well, uh, Mike, you're not the only one. Marv, do you mind my telling him that we had to remind you of that fact the other day? <laughs> it's only been 50 years since I wrote it. I can't possibly imagine why I couldn't remember. Yes, hopefully that makes you feel better, Mike. It sure does. And finally, we wanted to know what writer and editor co-created The Black Cat with artists Keith Pollard and Dave Cockrum. Helen, what did Mike say? Mike said Tom DeFalco. And Marv? Mike is wrong again. Oh. Why do you take so much joy in saying that, I'm wondering? <laughs> Marv, my apologies. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, it is a great honor. I have read so many comics with your name on them Thank that you. I now know uh, wouldn't have existed uh, without you. Uh, I mean, I knew that they wouldn't, but I didn't even know that your name wouldn't have been on them without you. So uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, Mike, is there anything else you'd like to ask or say to Marv while we have him here? Marv, are you working on things still? Are you writing? Are you creating? What are you up to? I just signed a contract to do a graphic novel. Can't say what it is, mm. but uh, it's a graphic novel of a couple hundred pages. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to uh, getting to work on it. Excellent. Amazing. And one one final question. If listeners out there don't know that they've read your work or haven't yet read your work, what what comics would you direct them to as a good place to start as an, in, an entryway to your work? Great question. If you're a Marvel fan, Tomb of Dracula, mm-hmm. Marvel has published several hardcover editions. So you could find the entire 63 issues I wrote published there. That's probably the first uh, major success that I had. At DC, either New Teen Titans or Crisis on Infinite Earths as well as my Superman stories. Excellent. Great question. Great answers. A lot to absorb if you're trying to uh, be a Marv Wolfman completist. We thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about your work and what you're up to, where can they do that? MarvWolfman.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. What an honor. Marv Wolfman, everybody. Take care. And that will close the book on this best of comic book special of Go Fact Yourself. You can find links in our show notes to the full episodes of all the segments you heard. And be sure to listen for regularly scheduled episodes of Go Fact Yourself, dropping twice a month, every month. Same fact time, same fact station. And that just leaves me to thank all of our guests and experts from the shows you just heard. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's happening again. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. Our next live shows are in Los Angeles and Pasadena. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on all the socials, all at GoFactorPod, update our wiki at GoFactorWiki.Fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt and mug-shaped mug at MaxFunStore.com. Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton and comes to you via transcription from various homes and venues across the world. 
world. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer and editor and possibly Spider-Man is Julian Burrell. Our show engineer is Dave McKeever. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Needif. Promotional graphics by Eric Tran. Video clips by Annie LaFerriere. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Vallada. Special thanks to everyone we didn't mention who worked on all of these episodes. I've been Helen Hong. Let's go read comic books. Or maybe quickly pass them along to someone who really wants to. Yeah, no judgment. You guys, it worked. In our last episode, I asked you to submit ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast platforms, and many of you did. Thank you. So, is that enough for me? Am I satisfied? No. Because now it's time for you to sign up for our email list. We send them out only occasionally, but we always try to include some exclusive news, photos, or other material to say thank you. And we never share your name or email with anyone, even if they ask really nicely. It's a great way to keep up with what's going on with the show. So go to GoFactorPod.com and click on Get Involved, put in your name and email, and we'll take care of the rest. Thanks so much for listening and for doing my bidding. <laughs> Helen, why are you laughing evilly? Whatever do you mean, Jakey? Uh, uh, no, nothing. I'm scared. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.